good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, we'll learn all about a new performing arts festival that aims to showcase local talent. I'll be talking with the Museum of Contemporary Arts performance curator Tara Aisha Willis. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a revival of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And later I'll sit down with a local author who wrote a new picture book that was inspired by his experience performing at the White House in 2009. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for arts and culture this morning. The Museum of Contemporary Art wants to shine a brighter light on Chicago performing artists. This week, the institution unveiled details of a brand new event called Chicago Performs. Set to take place September 15th and 16th, Chicago Performs will take the shape of an intimate festival that will showcase a curated group of local artists. The inaugural festival will present brand new works by Chicago artist Aaron Kilmurray, Derek McFadder, and Bimbola Akinbola. I recently caught up with the MCA's curator of performance, Tara Aisha Willis, to learn more about the inspiration and evolution of Chicago Performs. What was the, the starting point for the idea that turned into Chicago Performs? Yeah, great question. I think it's multiple things. I think most immediately the pandemic has just totally changed and transformed how institutions are, you know, making art happen, you know, supporting making art happen. And of course, it's changed how artists are making art happen. In the shutdown, everything really became about what was nearby, what was, you know, possible with the people around you in many ways. And of course, digital, the digital world also expanded drastically. One of the things that that emerged out of that period has just been some clarity, I think, for many institutions and many artists about what's necessary to make art. And that includes flexibility, that includes like a focus on the process more than the product, that includes you know, just like really incubating and digging in over time. And so I'm hoping that this series really responds to that for local artists, connecting local artists to each other, connecting local artists to a national scene, but also like providing an infrastructure um, that's clear, that really looks across our programs, even though we are like really about presenting art, you know, looking across past programs we've done with artists, smaller one-off things we've done with local artists, and trying to extend those relationships and draw them out. And then, you know, another starting place, I have to really give credit to my predecessors in, in performance at the MCA before my time. Also, I think this series really tries to build in a consistent presence of local artists in our season in performance. So that's um, a shift, I think. You know, in the past, it's been different from year to year uh, where local artists are showing up. But it's really part of the MCA from the beginning. You know, we've always had performance in the building, even, you know, in the early days of the museum before we had a theater, there was performance and there were local artists, local musicians, local uh, dance companies doing their work, you know, as well as sort of majorly recognized performance artists and that kind of thing. So um, in a way, it's back to our roots, you know, but also trying to build for the future of what the arts landscape looks like now and really trying to support 
Chicago artists to navigate that. As you mentioned, the MCA already does a lot to, to support local artists, local performers. Was the idea then to create a specific, I don't want to use the term branded, but I guess a specific mm-hmm. event. So I guess what I'm getting at is, is what differentiates Chicago Performs from some of the other programming the MCA already does. Yeah, that's, that, that makes perfect sense. So first of all, we are also shifting our season. So we, every year going forward, we'll do a kind of big moment in the spring where several different performance projects will happen kind of as a thematic exhibition. Um, and so that is where we will continue to consistently have national and global performance work coming to the MCA, um, as well as hopefully also Chicago artists as part of that. So this is not necessarily some sort of segregation of Chicago artists out of our season into a separate platform. But what it is trying to acknowledge is that, you know, our kind of system of presenting work where, you know, you come to the theater, the, the show runs for a few days, and that artist is in town for maybe a week, maybe a week and a half, if we're lucky, you know, and then they're gone. And then a few weeks later, there's another show, kind of the same rhythm. That system doesn't really help local artists, even if it is a local show, because presenters and curators, unless they already, from around the country and even around the world, unless they already know that artist's work for some reason, are not going to come into town to see one show. What they'll come into town for is to see multiple shows really close together in a festival format. So this is uh, our way of really trying to do justice to the local scene and provide a kind of slice of what's going on here to those national and international presenters and use our leverage our networks that already exist because part of my job is to go around the country and around the world and attend performing arts festivals and see work in other places. And when I do that, I'm there with all of these colleagues and really able to, you know, talk to them about Chicago and what's happening here in Chicago. It's less about sort of separating out the Chicago artists and more about providing a structure that they can really use. And through doing that, also, you know, responding to this need for, you know, focusing on process and supporting the project, not just at its its finished point, it's sort of like, now it's perfect and we can show it to the audience, you know, that phase of it, but really along the way over the course of the year prior to that as well. So I think, you know, hopefully what this is doing is actually expanding our support for Chicago artists uh, even further and more consistently year after year as well. Willis believes Chicago Performs has the potential to fill a void and be a bridge for ascending artists who are ready to take that next step really trying to step into a gap that I think happens in our our landscape in Chicago, our arts landscape, where there's so many amazing smaller venues and smaller projects happening all the time and so many amazing bigger (laughs) venues and bigger projects happening all the time. And sort of where's that middle ground where artists can, you know, for the first time expand into a larger scale of, of a production or, you know, for the first time expand into a different kind of collaboration with uh, designers or artists of other disciplines or whatever that looks like for them. And I think MCA being the interdisciplinary institution that we are can support all different genres of performance and artists who are coming out of performance art or, you know, transitioning into performance from visual art or, you know, for the first time building a theater work that really works with music um, or with dance, you know. So I think we're especially positioned in a, in a 
space where we have experience working with artists to share process in series that have existed for a while, like In Progress, which is a sort of regular series we do that does typically support local artists to show sort of new work and development. But we also have this track record as a major presenting institution for, you know, sort of highly crafted, uh, very, you know, technically produced theater, dance and performance and music. Once the infrastructure of the festival came together and you started thinking about programming, did you have a a guiding set of principles that you followed when it came time to curate this inaugural showcase? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And it's certainly it's the first year, so we'll continue to hone this process over the coming years. Um, But I think that, you know, right now what's most important is not only that the artists and the works really make sense next to each other, even though it's not a thematic series, we really want to be tuning into what big questions are, you know, sort of unfolding creatively in the scene in Chicago and find works that are asking those questions um, that can sit next to each other and really create conversation during that two-day period on September 15th and 16th. Um, But I think it's also about the moment in the project's development and in the artist's career and it's not, a, it's not an exact science, <laughs> but it is, you know, partly based on the relationships that we have through doing the in-progress series. You know, Derek McFadder and Bimbola Akimbola are both people who have done an in-progress showing with us over the last few years, uh, several years. And so, you know, looking back over the slate of local artists that we have worked with and really trying to think about, uh, trying to have conversations with artists, trying to think about where they're at and whether this is the right moment for the project they happen to be working on now to sort of move into this space. You know, are they really at a phase? And this is not like me necessarily making that judgment. <laughs> this is also like honest conversations with them. Like, is, is there a desire for them to connect with national curators at this particular moment? You know, what we know, one thing we know about Chicago artists is like they're really for and by and about Chicago. So for some artists, it's not that moment. Right. But I think also just really trying to um, consider also, you know, the reality is also that there are certain sort of trends in the field that I'm talking about with my curatorial colleagues and wanting to like bring forward also works that uh, will sort of make sense next to each other, but also draw uh, those folks to come visit, you know. So it's a combination of things, I would say. And so right now, we're it's the pool that we're looking at is really back over artists who have worked with us before. And I hope that that continues to be the case. Um, Aaron Kilmurray, I'll also mention, did a, did a performance for us, a commission um, for us before my time, but during the David Bowie um, uh, exhibition at the MCA several years ago. And so, you know, it's, it's like, how can we continue these relationships How can we also time it right so that it makes sense for the artists at this moment and they can take the best advantage of it and make use of it? Um, And also, how can we be sensitive and, and, you know, do do our best service (laughs) to ensure that folks will um, show up for them and, and help make those connections possible? We do have an email address where we hope that Chicago artists in the future will um, be able to send along their materials, their projects. Um, so that we can kind of, you know, be sure that we're really in touch with with folks, whether that's for Chicago Performs itself or just for the In Progress series and other um, one-off events that we do with Chicago artists. Um, We really want to be as plugged in as possible and expand, you know, part of the point of of all the work we're doing right now coming um, into this new phase, this new era, (laughs) this new pandemic era, is really to just think about how we can expand as curators and curatorial assistants and, and programmers um, 
our networks very intentionally. So I hope that this also provides some opportunities for, you know, that we're bringing these presenters into town and curators into town for these three artists, but also for, you know, we're going to have social time during this, this festival and, you know, there's going to be a party and happy hour and whatever, you know, so I hope that it's a useful thing for folks that come through, you know, to see the shows that they can also connect with those presenters and with us uh, during this couple of days. We are still kind of trying to hone the process, but I know that, um, you know, in the next years to come, it will, it will be even clearer what those sort of pathways are for artists. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Tara Aisha Willis, the performance curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art, about the institution's new performing arts showcase. So let's talk about the artists who are part of this year's Chicago Performs. 2022 is the Year of Chicago Dance, which is a citywide initiative celebrating dance all over Chicago. Um, is there a, a dance movement connection with the artists and performances that were selected? Two of the three do. I mean, movement, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm biased. I'm a dance scholar, and I think about movement a lot. So to me, theater is also movement, of course. And I think a lot of, you know, movement coaches for theater and uh, intimacy coaches would agree. But I think that, you know, Derek McFadder is certainly much more, you know, dead on in the theater world. Um, but his project is, you know, a music theater work. So he's working with a composer um, and musicians and, and vocalists um, and is at a phase in the project where it will be, uh, you know, not necessarily fully set designed and fully staged and directed, but he is thinking about how the staging of his new script and songs might start to work. So there will be costuming, there will be some attention to, um, you know, just how the performers are working with those songs in terms of spacing and and the look of the the show. And so it's kind of a first look at that project and development. So I would say there's movement even in that work. But um, certainly Erin Kilmurray's work, um, The Function, uh, this is a, a dance work she's been chugging away at for a while now. And of course, projects are so drawn out now with, with the pandemic that we've, we've been going through. So she's been working on it for a while, and this is kind of the first big production of it. And it's, that, is a, that is truly a dance work, which I'm really excited about to have, to have that, that piece on our stage. Audiences will be you know, sitting in, in the round with her, uh, with her cast and just experience this work, uh, you know, which is grappling with queer feminist utopia as a big idea, but really trying to use the tools of making dance, of staging dance, of doing the movement, but also, and kind of composing dance in the moment, but also the tools of the theater to sort of break down and rebuild this dance in front of our eyes as a way to kind of work towards an idea of utopia. And then Bimbola Akinbola, who is a, more in the performance art world and, and does actually come out of visual art, um, is working with dance as a tool in this particular piece. Um, Bimbola's work, which will be kind of site-specific in our commons in the theater excuse me, in the museum, which is a public space in the museum. So museum goers can sort of happen upon or stop by and take part in Bimbola's piece. You Gotta Know It is the name of the work. Um, and that is essentially a seven-hour electric slide. So it's a familiar <laughs> dance that we all know, you know. Um, but it's a really a meditation on, like, the exhaustion of doing something like that for seven hours, but also on celebration, on black joy, also on sort of the labor of joy and grappling, I think, like all three pieces do, with the question of joy and how um, so often 
this idea we have about joy is actually paired with a lot of resilience and a lot of work and a lot of complication around how to be together and celebrate together and, um, you know, take collective action. So um, I think that all three of the works are dealing with movement in some form or another, but certainly Aaron's work. I mean, Aaron has been a Chicago Dance Makers Forum artist in the past and is really beloved in Chicago as a dance artist, um, particularly for the Fly Honey show. But Bimbola's work as well, I mean, you know, what could be, uh, <laughs> we can't deny the, the dance element of that, even though, you know, categorically she's a performance artist, but we're going to all be able to, to pitch in and dance as part of that, that piece. So I think, you know, movement certainly runs through the series this year. As someone who used to DJ weddings. I'm a little partial to the cha-cha slide, but I also have uh-huh. a lot of respect for the electric slide. <laughs> the so, cha-cha is, is a classic. Yeah, I was looking at the performance schedule and the You Gotta Know It program jumped out at me when I read that the electric slide was involved and that it was seven hours. Will she be leading the dance that entire time? And will museum visitors be able to, to jump in and join the dance? Yeah, so she and three other performers who all um, have dance and performance backgrounds and specifically have done durational performances before in, in other projects will be going the whole time. So they'll be kind of planted there doing their box steps, you know, in the in the middle of the commons, um, just off the MCA's second floor lobby. Uh, for the full seven hours, I think it'll be fascinating to see, like, what it looks like for them to be going at the beginning of the day at 10 a.m. versus at 5 p.m., you know, kind of as the exhaustion sets in. Um, there is a sound score that's um, being composed that will play for the full seven hours. It has silence in it. It has samples from music, from familiar music. It also has like strange ambient sound in it. So it won't be the cha-cha, excuse me, the electric slide. Now I'm, now I don't want to dance the cha-cha slide. <laughs> um, it, will, it won't be the electric slide song oh, okay. uh, for okay. seven hours. But, like... uh, so that is part of the, the trickiness of it as well is that, you know, the rhythm won't be consistently there. So the group will really have to hold down that taste and that uh, rhythm, which, you know, I mean, the electric slide is like one of those ones. It's so regular, but also it's really easy to get off of it. You know, it's kind of got this special awkwardness to the (laughs) the rhythm in relation to the song that like people do really get off. I don't know if you've been to a wedding where that happens, but it's like people just lose the plot with that one. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the pace of it, you know, changes over the course of the day. And yes, people can join in anytime they want, um, you know, stick around and do it for two minutes you stick around and do it for 45 minutes you know i don't know that that will happen for a random (laughs) audience goer but i might try to do a little bit of a longer time you know and see what happens see how it feels so yeah yeah, i hope that i hope people do do uh, drop in we can't predict the future but from the way you're you're talking the, the way this has been developed is for it to be an annual event Yes. So really my hope, you know, I mentioned that every spring we'll do a sort of thematic curated performance exhibition, for lack of a better word, of sorts. My hope is also that every fall we, you know, sort of at the top of the, at the end of the summer, top of the fall, we'll do this Chicago Perform series. So yeah, you mentioned that it's sort of being branded in this way. And that is the intention that it is something we do every year. So that we're creating this kind of clear stepping stone for artists that there's a kind of a repeat um, 
uh, audience for it and and that those you know colleagues that I have out here outside of Chicago like start to come to know that they should come visit us every year around that time. I think that you know one of our goals is also that this is this is bigger than us that this is about you know the artists and it's about Chicago and that people will stick around and experience other things outside of the MCA as well when they're here. So I hope you know in future I look forward to aligning even more with some of the other things going on around the city. DKs and Choose Chicago, are they helping support this? We had a really wonderful event on Wednesday, and we did have DKs representatives in the house. We had Choose Chicago representatives in the house. It was really <laughs> lovely. Um, we had League of Chicago Theaters and Chicago Dance Makers Forum who have been partners to us for a long time. So in a way, I think it's like we're joining the echelon, you know, and really acknowledging the the role that we can play in, in Chicago alongside those other folks. So yeah, they, they've been very supportive, DKs. And um, yeah, I think it'll I think it'll be something that we continue to think about in tandem with these other organizations. And I know this is more of a, a question for the artists, but I'm curious to hear your perspective. Uh, what was it like when you told the artists about the idea for Chicago Performs and presented this opportunity to them? How did they react? It's different for each artist because our relationships with them, you know, naturally they've done things with us at different times, some more recently than others. You know, our relationships are just different. I think that... Um, you know, we've been, these are all three artists that we've been like wanting to build relationships with and excited about their work for a long time. Um, Derek McFadder, we've been working with more closely um, over the last couple of years, um, partly because he had a residency with us as part of the Long Dream exhibition that happened in 2020, 2021, um, during the sort of height of lockdown. Um, and then uh, he's also the recipient of a sort of new um, part of our program to support new work. We have a a thing called the New Works Initiative, and there is a Chicago Artist Commission as part of this bigger uh, effort in the performance team at MCA to sort of build support structures for new work development. And so he's been the recipient of that. So we've been working with him even more closely on some professional development stuff over the last year and and the development of this project. That's one artist we've really been in touch with um, just because the opportunities have kind of been back to back. Aaron Kilmurray is an artist we've really wanted to work with for a long time. Um, and so I think for, probably for her, and she'll, I, don't quote me on this, or you can quote me on the radio, but you know, I, <laughs> I can't speak on her behalf. Um, but I think she was probably more surprised. We just knew that we, we wanted to continue that relationship and, and really um, support the expansion of, of her practice. Bimbola is an artist we've, we've been talking about this particular project for a long time, so it's really been focused on the project and finding a way for that project to happen. The ability to kind of support her more broadly as an artist in general has been just a really beautiful um, offshoot of um, wanting to support that project and finding this platform, finally being able to put this platform forward and think more broadly about how to how to support her practice um, across the board. You know, I mean, this is the nature of, of curatorial work, I think, a lot of the time, is it's not as simple as kind of you know, here's the program, we fill the, we fill the program and try to do our best to support, you know, the, the project happening. It's really also about these relationships and deep conversation over time. And the thing you think a project might be the right fit for one year, you know, then can totally change because the project changes or the artist situation changes or the institution changes. Really trying to be malleable and flexible alongside these artists to really tune in to the right moment for this series to kind of enter their lives. Tara, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. 
That's Tara Aisha Willis. She's the curator of performance at the Museum of Contemporary Art. The first ever Chicago Performs will take place Thursday, September 15th, and Friday, September 16th at the MCA. You can find out more details by visiting mcachicago.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every Sunday right here on WDCB, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. You can find archived episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus all sorts of other content that goes along with all the features you hear on the program. So if you have some time, check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning Gary. Gary. Mercury Theater's revival of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, has opened at a moment when some of the themes explored in the musical are also in our local headlines. Up in McHenry County, a lake in the Hills Cafe found itself at the center of a nasty conflict because the owners planned to host a family-friendly drag show on July 23rd. The town was bracing for protests and counter-protests, but the night before the event, someone vandalized the cafe, forcing it to cancel the show. The person has since been arrested and charged with a felony hate crime for the incident. The musical Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which debuted in Australia in 2006, is based on the 1994 indie film The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. In that film, three drag artists embark on a road trip across the Australian outback and encounter a variety of characters and situations, some of them dark and dangerous. And it's been a while since I've watched the film, but I remember flinching at certain moments. And I'm interested to hear how the musical handles those situations. But let's start with uh, Jonathan. Are you familiar with the film? And have you ever seen a, a production of this musical before? I did see the film back in the 1990s when it was new and uh, all the rage. And every everyone was trying to figure out how the uh, Australian filmmakers got a, a notable name British actor like Terence Stamp to, uh, to be in it. So I saw the film. And I have seen the stage musical in one previous production and i should note that jukebox musicals and this is such this is a jukebox musical they're not my cup of tea and i don't usually like movie to stage adaptations but priscilla queen of the desert is better than most i have to say as you said it's a adaptation of the cult movie about three drag queens bussing across the outback and it it really benefits from the film's relatively simple storyline and the show makes it even simpler to provide room for the songs some of the dark occurrences that you remember uh, gary from the film some of the encounters are uh, eliminated in the stage musical so it's a bit simpler and and cleaner it also benefits from the fact that 
that drag, uh, at least its modern incarnation, is itself a jukebox art form. Okay. So that works together very, very well. This production also happens to be, I think, uh, an excellent production, directed and choreographed by Christopher Chase Carter, who is the new or relatively new uh, artistic director of the Mercury Theater, which has produced it. So it all comes together pretty well in this production, I think. Carrie? I agree with you in, in the main. I do feel like there is some short shrift given to the dark elements that are still incorporated. It felt a little bit of a dutiful checking off of like, and then this thing happened without really giving the, you know, the context, without giving a lot away. You know, obviously these are three drag queens going across the, you know, the outback and in very, uh, you know, kind of, I guess that would be the Australian equivalent of flyover country, if we want to use that term. And they do have some moments that are quite tense. And in one case, uh, on the verge of a very violent assault on the youngest of, of the, of the uh, performers, who goes to a bar, he's kind of been warned, don't go out and drag, but he decides he's going to do that, and is on the verge of a pretty violent assault. And it feels like that is included to give us a sense of the dangers that they face, but we don't really see that it has an impact on them. You know, it's off to the next number. So moments like that were still a little sore thumb for me. I don't know how you felt about it, Jonathan. But in well, the main, I think that as a show that exists to highlight drag, to celebrate these these performers, to celebrate the art form, it's very successful. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as a theater critic, someone who does uh, professional analysis of the structure or dramaturgy of mm -hmm. shows. Yes, I agree with you. But on the other hand, even in the original film, the story development and character development were not the long suits, were not the strength <laughs> yeah, of this that, project. That, that is all, fair. Yeah. All pretty <laughs> simplistic. Uh, to, to people who don't know it, the central figure is Tick a drag queen who performs under the name Mitzi at a club in Sydney, Australia. And Tip decides to drive across, uh, halfway across the country to Alice Springs to visit the young son he's never met. And he enlists his friends Bernadette and Adam to join him with the promise of a month's work at the fancy Alice Springs Casino and Hotel. Adam also is a drag queen who performs as Felicia. He's the young one uh, that uh, Carrie mentioned just a, a moment ago, who's a little uh, too out there for his own good. And Bernadette is a recently widowed trans woman. So you have two drag queens and a trans woman uh, in a uh, you know in right. a touring bus across Australia, and I can't help wondering how Rogers and Hammerstein would have handled this, this trio <laughs> right. of lead characters. And it's, and it's important to note that Bernadette was a drag performer, a very uh, influential, you know, sort of, uh, was it Les, Les Girls? Was that the name of the troupe? That I'm, was the name yeah. of the troupe, yeah. Right, uh, kind of, you know, one of the very pioneering drag performers, has retired, has been living a quiet life with her younger husband, who has died suddenly. So in part, you know, in the great tradition of road road movies or road stories, they all, with the exception of Adam, we don't really get a ton of backstory on him. They all have either a secret that they're, that they're hiding. Uh, Tick is not quite as forthcoming about why he wants to get to Alice Springs initially. Uh, he doesn't really mention his son right away. Uh, Bernadette has grief that she's trying to overcome by going back on the road and by actually going back into performance, reconnecting. So all of that, I think, does add some emotional resonance. But I think this is, as you said, Jonathan, mostly there to highlight the art of drag, to highlight 
uh, what these performances mean. And, uh, you know, there's a beautiful moment in terms of one of the darker things that happens where they stop in this club kind of impromptu. They end up doing karaoke night. Everybody seems to love them. And then when they go out, a, a, a homophobic epithet has been scrawled on Priscilla, which is the name of the tour bus in which they're riding. And, uh, you know, Adam says something like, I thought they loved us. And Tick says, only until sunrise. And I thought that was yeah. just an incredible encapsulation of what, you know, the sorts of things we're talking about. RuPaul's Drag Race can be, you know, a number, you know, a, a big hit. And yet, you know, Lake in the Hills can, can, uh, can the yeah. bakery can, it can endure what it's had to endure. Um, yeah. Now, we should, we should point out that the film wasn't a musical, although it had some musical numbers. Right. Uh, so the stage adapt- adapters have had a, you know, a, a field day combing through, you know, the extensive catalog of pop songs and disco hits to uh, select songs that fit each character and situations. And they're really, really very wide-ranging. They're disco hits such as I Will Survive and I Love the Nightlife right. to um, Burt Backrock, Say a Little, I Say a Little Prayer, uh, right. and uh, Country and Western, Thank God I'm a Country Boy, and even A Fine Romance. Yeah, the great American standard from the 1930s by Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields. Uh, and I'll tell you, for me, the sharp departure from disco and pop hits to other musical genres, most of these in Act Two, really adds a great deal to the show. And uh, and it shows some some careful right. selection by the uh, by the, uh, the the creators of the show. Right. The musical director, we should add, is uh, Eugene Dyson, who's been associated with the Mercury Theater for many, many years. But there is no live band or musicians. Very unusually, all the instrumental mm-hmm. tracks uh, are pre-recorded, and the vocals are a combination of live and lip-syncing in the drag tradition. Yes. There is a debate that arises at one point that I thought was very interesting and kind of a little bit meta within the concept, context of this musical about the difference between lip-syncing as an art form and singing. Uh, Bernadette, played by the great... Chicago cabaret legend, Honey West, really talks about lip-syncing as its own art form. You need to respect it. It's not mere, mere mimicry. It's embodying. Um, and I think that in some cases you might see that as sort of special pleading for, look, we know we don't have a live band, or look, we know we're not all, you know, not every number is being sung live. But here I think it actually does get to the, the, uh, the question of what it is that they're doing and, and why it matters and why being able to take on these different songs and these different personas creates a sense of freedom, creates a sense of possibility that maybe isn't always allowed gender nonconforming people in the, you know, everyday world. Well, I don't disagree with that, and yet I think perhaps you're digging a little too deeply. Not that it isn't there, but it's not you know, none of this is 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 overtly is overtly stated. It it, it this is a uh, a show in which the show part of of the show really is the dominant factor, and, right? And it it works. This is a musical which never takes itself too seriously, even in its serious moments. You know, they're very brief, and then you move on. As you said, Carrie, sometimes it seemed like they're not, you know, they're not making a substantial enough point. That's the nature of this particular vehicle, and it has a field day. A field day with dazzling costumes and hats and headpieces and wigs. You can credit Robert Kuhn for the costumes and Keith Ryan for the wigs. 
and a really fine cast of 12, which is led by Josh Houghton as Tick Mitzi, Sean White as the bad boy Adam Felicia, and as you noted, the great veteran Chicago artist Honey West as Bernadette. Yes, and uh, Michael Kingston shows up. He's only in the cast until August 14th. He is a, he's not in drag, but he becomes an unlikely love interest for Bernadette. He's a mechanic who helps fix Priscilla, and he is, in fact, the reason that a fine romance is heard on the stage. Um, it's sort of an opposite attract and a beautiful little subplot of um, his attraction to Bernadette and his remembrances of having seen her in Late Girls. Um, so it's that sort of, uh, you know, late late autumn romance um, in this world that seems to often be focused on, you know, on the young and the sexy. Um, we get to see, you know, the older folk, <laughs> although I hope Honey will forgive me for saying that, <laughs> uh, in their, in their uh, it, it, re- reconnecting, you know, with that passion, that, um, that music, that, that the, uh, the joy and the romance of these songs brings to their lives. Uh, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, I would sum up, is uh, calling, I would say it is a rousing, colorful show, which delivers a, really a lot of musical bang for very modest ticket prices. I believe the, the most expensive ticket for this show is $40, which is really yeah. cheap for a musical these days. And it's, and it's an excellent returns, a live production for the Mercury Theater. As we've noted, the story is thin. The characters are... Uh, often just a touch absurd, especially Adam Felicia. Uh, and you know what? None of this really matters. Uh, I think people should go for the fun of the songs, of almost all of which people will recognize, and definitely for the show, for this piece of showbiz. And I would suggest that leave the young kids at home for this. Sure, yeah. Um, it's interesting to note that this show is actually in rehearsals only for a production in the near uh, the adjacent and smaller Venus Cabaret space at the Mercury in March of 2020, when, of course, you know, everything shut down. So they have brought it back, but they are doing it on the, the main stage, the proscenium space. There were points where I wondered, how would this play in a cabaret space? But uh, I think given the bigness of the show and the bigness of the performances, um, certainly it fills that the, the space on the main stage quite well. All right. Definitely. Mercury Theater's revival of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, continues through September 11th. And we wanted to touch on some pretty big theater news. We've seen a number of leadership changes at theater companies throughout the Chicago area over the past two years. Uh, one of the announcements we were waiting for was who was going to take over as Goodman Theater's new artistic director as Robert Falls retires and we, we found out who this past week, uh, Susan Booth. <laughs> Carrie, this is kind of a, a homecoming of sorts? It is. Susan Booth was, a li- I believe, literary manager at the Goodman for many years and then uh, left oh, over 20 years ago to become the artistic director at Atlanta's very well-respected uh, sort of regional flagship, the Alliance Theater. Uh, so now it's sort of going uh, full circle. So in a way... Yes, the Goodman has brought in somebody from out of town as part of their national search, but it also feels like they're they've kind of queued close to in house. You know, this is a this is definitely somebody who has been associated uh, with the work at the Goodman and particularly with new work uh, for many many years. Um, I you know I I can't say that it was a surprising choice, but I think it's a you know it when it was announced, my first reaction was 
Oh, that makes a lot of sense. What was your reaction, Jonathan? I think it's a brilliant choice. Yeah. And it came as a surprise to me because I just hadn't thought about Susan B. <laughs> Booth on, on the list. But she has deep, deep mm-hmm. Chicago connections. She, right. uh, she has a degree from Northwestern University, her master's degree, I believe. I think she got her, her bachelor's at Denison University. And not only did she work at the Goodman Theater, but she was uh, an award-winning or at least award-nominated director in the off-loop scene in Chicago in the 1990s uh, and really cut her teeth, her professional teeth, in Chicago and established a reputation. You don't just get hired from being an obscure literary manager at the Goodman to being artistic director of the Alliance Theater, which is a national, a major, a Tony Award-winning regional theater. So to bring her back to Chicago is, is a lovely, lovely idea. And yeah. it seems to me a smart choice and a, and a good choice. She knows still so many of the players here the veterans, and of course, you know, people move around much more than they used to, actors and directors. Sure. Um, and also, as you said, Carrie, and this is important for the Goodman, uh, Susan V. Booth is known for her work with uh, new work, new plays, new scripts, and she's a, um, has a good deal of expertise, as does Bob Falls, whom she is replacing. We should add that Doc, Bob Falls is not hanging up his spurs and disappearing. He will continue to direct shows at the Goodman Theater and presumably may be out of town as well. Uh, but he is hanging up his, uh, his spurs huh. as artistic director. Yeah. And I think, it, again, it makes sense because as far as we know, Rock Schulfer is still hanging out at the Goodman. He is the longtime executive director. And I think it would also make sense that that partnership works best if it's somebody that, you know, Rock already feels that he has a you know, relationship with as well. Um, it, it's definitely been an interesting time. You and I have talked about this so many times on the program, Jonathan, how much change has been happening in leadership roles at Chicago theaters. Certainly the Goodman is, you know, one of the, the biggest. You know? um, and I think it's going to make a nice homecoming with Susan Booth. I think that she, just the, the temperature that I've been able to take so far is that she is somebody who's very well respected nationally and certainly still very well thought of locally. So um, in terms of something that's a continuation, but also allows for expansion, uh, as you mentioned again, particularly with her uh, her being so conversant with the development of new work, I think it's an exciting development. Yeah. You know, uh, you mentioned the changes in leadership. Uh, we can note that Chicago has now six theater companies which have won the annual Tony Award for Outstanding Regional Theater. Uh, And of those six, four have undergone or are undergoing Mm -hmm. changes at the very top, changes in leadership in the course of the last two or three years. Steppenwolf has a new team, uh, both on the management side and the artistic side, leading them. Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Barbara Gaines, the founder and artistic director, has announced that she will step down at uh, at the end of next year. So they are beginning the search. Goodman has now completed that search. And Victory Gardens, which we've mm-hmm. talked about in the last couple of weeks, is once again, once again searching for an artistic director under very, very controversial circumstances. Yeah. 
Now, it's also interesting. I mean, Court Theater is the other two that you mentioned. Court Theater, which just won the Tony this year, is continuing under the very able leadership of Charles Newell. Uh, Looking Glass, I think, is an interesting case. That's the sixth one, because they're an artistic ensemble, and they seem to, I think they've passed around the artistic leadership amongst the ensemble every few years. It seems that somebody new steps in, and, you know, that model seems to have worked pretty well for them, as far as I can determine. But they, they are definitely a company that has stayed you know, within the stable, so to speak. Um, and in some ways, again, we can probably argue that Susan Booth is, uh, you know, she's been a satellite you know, artistic associate, even if though she's been mostly involved with uh, running Alliance, where by all accounts, her stewardship at Alliance Theater in Atlanta was really responsible for great growth in that organization as well. Yes, absolutely. So a good choice. Yeah. Yes, I, I think so. a good choice at the Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Gary. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the Arts Section. An Evanston man's once-in-a-lifetime experience of performing at the White House was the inspiration for a new children's book that comes out this week. The book is called The Most Haunted House in America and tells the fictional tale of a trio of skeletons invited to drum at the White House. Author Jarrett Dapier has some familiarity with the scenario because he was part of a drum group that performed at a White House Halloween party back in 2009. I recently sat down with Dapier to talk about how his experience at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue inspired this new book. You were part of like a drum group that got to perform at the White House? Yeah, in 2008, I was in a show at Looking Glass Theater called Hephaestus, which was a Greek mythology tale told through circus. And I and another drummer named Rick were two live drummers who played throughout the show as a lot of the circus acts uh, performed. And so that sort of introduced me into the world of circus drumming. And I got connected to local performers and producers who do circus work for private events. So Rick and I did a lot of drumming together after that show concluded. And in October of 2009, I dropped off my daughter at preschool and I'm walking through a park in Evanston and I get a call from Rick and he says, hi, would you like to drum at the White House with me? (laughs) And I was stunned and I just was speechless and said, yes, of course, he said, because Red Moon Theater Company, now defunct, um, but at that time, you know, very much thriving, uh, was invited by the White House events team to um, bring performers to perform at a Halloween celebration at the White House, and they want to have three drummers. So they had two picked, and then they said to Rick, hey, help us find another one. So Rick gave me a call, for which I will forever be thankful so two weeks later, we uh, maybe it was a week later, we were on a plane to go drum at the White House on Halloween. It was that quick of a turnaround? Like yeah, a it week? was very brief. And actually, I was sick a couple of days before the trip, and I've never, I've never imbibed more green tea in my life to try and get better fast. <laughs> what was the experience like drumming on the White House lawn? We were ushered into the White House to get into costume, and it was so fast because, you know, you go through security, and then they usher us through this side door, and I'm walking through a hallway looking at all these portraits of the Obamas and 
trying to take in as much of the White House as I can in the 10 seconds that I had, because then they ushered us down some stairs and into a green room, which was could have been, you know, anywhere. We get in a skeleton costume and then they're like, all right, it's time. And then they uh, line us up and bring us up outside. But we got to walk through the White House out the front door to get to our drums. You know, we had maybe five minutes to get used to the three different stations for the drummers. Um, We were in our skeleton costumes and then they opened the gates and people were lined up. I don't know how far to come and trick or treat at the White House. Uh I did take a moment to look around and I did that a couple times throughout the experience because I reminded myself you have to see as much as you can so you can remember. And one thing that struck me throughout was how incredible the other performers looked that they had invited from different cities and towns all over. There was, there were a couple um, performers dressed up as these beautiful butterflies inside huge bubbles. Mm. And they just walked slowly back and forth across the lawn like a dream. (laughs) There were performers on stilts dressed as trees who were so high up that they sort of towered over the children and families and sort of blended in with the trees around the drive. Um, And then Red Moon had this really cool uh, costume, which was a vintage deep diver suit. And uh, the person inside of it, her face was lit up by a green light. And she sort of moved around the driveway like she was underwater. So there was just a lot of amazing, beautiful and enchanting stuff going on. And we drummed for two and a half hours straight. We would take maybe a 10 second break at certain intervals to change stations on the drum cart. It was amazing. One thing that I always am thankful for is is the fact that I had a chance to also witness the joy of the people who were trick-or-treating, especially the kids. Children and families would come up the drive. We'd be drumming. They'd get to meet the Obamas, at least for the first hour, and then get their candies and then go back down the other part of the drive past us. Mm -hmm. And I still remember, of course, families didn't want to leave right away, even though they were encouraged, you've got to keep going. Oh, okay. But they would linger by us to dance. And I still have a very vivid memory of one mom holding a baby and she's got maybe a three or four year old and they're just dancing to what we were playing. Yeah. And that was probably, that's one of my favorite memories from the day. Did you get a chance to meet the president and the first lady? I did not. So that was sort of the question. That was the the uh, $100 question for everyone is what happens after trick-or-treating? Do we get to go inside? Because everyone knew that after trick-or-treating, there was a party inside for military families and White House staff and their families. And none of us knew which performers were going to go inside to be at that party. And so everybody's sort of wondering what happens. And once the drumming was over and they shut the front doors to the White House, um, we were led by staff to these tents that were set up on the side of the White House to take off our makeup. And so we were looking at each other thinking, I guess this means we're not going in. Supposedly, Obama said the drummers rocked. Oh, nice. Nice. (laughs) So you have this uh, amazing experience in in the Halloween of 2009. What led to the the creation of this book that's coming out now? Well, it always stayed in my mind as an experience that was utterly enchanting and full of joy. And 
full of a sense of community because of the presence of all of the families and local children. So it always had that resonance in my mind as a magical experience that was really unlike anything I've ever gone through before. And it, w- But it wasn't until I read Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, that I realized, oh, I should turn this into something. When I read Becoming, I nearly fell out of my chair when I read the part in the book where she details the origins of that very night. She mentions the skeleton musicians in the chapter. And so I was just so excited. And I loved the book Becoming um, regardless. But the fact that there's this couple pages where she talks through this story was just amazing to me. So then I thought, well, this is a this is a real event. This is something historical in a way, um, because there's backstory and presidential drama. And so that's when I went back to the manuscript and wrote the story of the skeleton drummers. So something that I really wasn't familiar with until I started flipping through your book and then talking to you was that I guess there's a lot of ghost lore and myths uh, attached to the White House. Uh, a lot of there's a, a lot of reported ghost sightings at, at the White House, and you've made some of those elements part of the book. Is that something that developed later as you were kind of fleshing out the idea? My original idea for the book was about real skeletons who are, are drummers and get invited by the First Lady of the United States to perform at a Halloween celebration at the White House. And they take a journey underground, pop up on the White House lawn with all of their drums and play, and then go inside for the party that occurs after trick-or-treating. And the editor who eventually bought it at Abrams Kids really pushed me to explore more than just my own experience, because a lot of what I wrote into the book was sort of what I've already described here, like what I saw, you know, on the on the lawn, the other performers and the sort of magical images. And so I was sort of stuck and I just started looking up pictures of the White House. And I think I, I landed on a website that is independent of the White House, but it talks, it does a lot of chronicling the history of the White House. And I think maybe I was searching for White House haunted, White House Halloween, but I eventually landed on a website that detailed the history of the many ghost sightings and hauntings that have been reported at the White House, especially since the end of the Civil War. And so I started playing with the idea that when the skeleton drummers go inside, they actually start to encounter real ghosts. And the real ghosts that they run into are ghosts that people over the years have reported seeing or interacting with or encountering at some point. Um, And I just hit the ground running with that idea because there are so many ghosts that people say that they've seen at the White House Mm -hmm. and uh, trying to incorporate in as many as I could. Um, I, I, um, started having, you know, portraits come alive and, uh, the the subjects of the portraits step out of the frame. And the story became that after trick or treating, they go inside and the skeleton drummers take a wrong turn, end up in the red room, which is a famous room in the white house where there is an actual ghost party occurring. And the skeleton drummers become very frightened and uh, try to find their way out of the White House, but they're lost. And so they're running through the White House and then they keep encountering more and more ghosts. 
in the end, they reach the party um, hosted, you know, by the president and first lady. But it's a party that is both the living and the dead all together. Mm. There's a whole slew of of ghost sightings of people that um, most listeners would recognize. The the most prominent and the most oft-cited ghost in the White House is uh, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And there's some great stories. Um, He's been seen repeatedly looking outside the yellow room, um, his hands behind his back as though deep in thought, looking out the window, um, which reportedly he used to do, um, especially during the Civil War when he was distraught and carrying the weight of so much uh, horror on his shoulders. And um, people have seen him standing at the window there. Winston Churchill claimed that he was staying at the White House, got out of the bath, walked into whatever suite he was staying in, and there stood Abraham Lincoln. And Winston Churchill was naked. And, you know, apocryphal or not, he said to Abraham Lincoln, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but it appears you have me at a disadvantage. (laughs) Sounds Um, like something he would say. (laughs) Yeah. And then Queen Wilhelmina II is the other famous story. She says that she heard a knocking at the bedroom door at two in the morning and she opened it and Abraham Lincoln was standing right there, which to me is a very creepy image. Um, But yeah. So you've got a a book launch party coming up on August 2nd. It's going to be at the the bookstall out in Winnetka, 6.30 p.m. Uh, People can uh, go to the bookstall website to find info for that. Uh, Seems like perfect timing. Halloween's right around the, the corner. Obviously, you spent uh, so much time working on this. Now you're going to put it out there into the world. What do you hope the families that pick this up take away from it? I want it, first and foremost, to be a fun read aloud for parents. I want kids to laugh and be intrigued by the many, many funny and silly and crowded details throughout the book that are both spooky and goofy. And I want them to take away a sense of joy around the experience of being together, especially now that the pandemic has kept so much of us apart. And now that gun violence is keeping people apart, especially outdoors, I want people to remember how special and important it is to be together to celebrate things. And the story here, even though it's wild and has a lot of funny parts to it, is still a story of a beautiful event that the First Lady created that really was centered on on community and bringing people together. Are you going to send a copy to the former First Lady? I have already. Have you heard anything? No, because I sent it yesterday. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be exciting. To I hope so. Hear. I yeah. hope so. The book is The Most Haunted House in America. Jared, it's always a pleasure having you in. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me again. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week, 
Thanks for listening. All summer long we sang a song and then we strolled that golden sand. Two sweethearts and the summer wind. Like painted kites, those days and nights they went flying by.